Welcome to IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. Yes, the rules have changed. Good day, wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio, for Friday, March 20th, 2009. Episode 117 comes to you from Studio B in beautiful Coriopolis, Pennsylvania. My name is Joe Hughes, or Radio Joe. we got a full studio today. Here with me in the studio is the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnick. Hey, Joe, how are you? Good day, Cliff. Good to be back. Uh, we got Environmental Annie, our, our environmental intern here. She's going to stop in and uh, say hello when we get her a microphone. Of course, we've got the wingman at the controls. Good afternoon. Oh, yeah, that sounded good, Chris. Chris Boisel joining us at halftime for and for the roundup will be our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow. Today's segments include the microband trivia question, and we're going to have Jeff May for the hour. Jeff's uh, an author and an indoor environmental quality consultant that uh, most of our listeners would be familiar with. We will have the IE Connections, What's News with Glenn Fellman. He hasn't been on in a while, so I'm sure there's some interesting news coming around. We'll go back to finish up with Jeff, and then we will do our roundup and bring everyone in for a final couple of questions. We've been updating and adding a little blog to the IAQ Radio website. Every week after the show, check it out at iaqradio.com. Before we start, let's thank our sponsors. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IEQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising informational available at ieconnections.com. Dry Ease Products, providing equipment for drying water damaged homes and buildings. Dry Ease is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. All right. To contact the show, you can call 724-444-7444. Our show ID is 1547. Press the number 1 and join the show. Of course, you can also download the show by going to our website, iaqradio.com. Follow the link that says go to the show and uh, download it from there or from iTunes. Don't forget, we also have IICRC Continuing Education Credits or IAQ Council Renewal Credits available by emailing me and requesting a quiz. We're also working on uh, ABIH uh, Certification Maintenance Points. We'll have those very soon. Uh, email me at joe.hughes, that's H-U-G-H-E-S, at iaqtraining.com. 
make a request for a quiz, and uh, we'll send them out to you and get you those credits. Uh, we also like to take suggestions. You can email me or Cliff at cliffzlotnick at unsmoke.com. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Let's turn it over to Cliff for the microband trivia question. Thanks, Joe. Congratulations go out to Paul Hawes of Morse Zanner for answering a second microband trivia question. You can win a cool prize by correctly answering a microband trivia question, and the good news is that a few trivia questions from past shows still remain unanswered. It's easy to submit an answer for the trivia question. Simply email your answer to cliffzlotnick at unsmoke.com. Now the microband trivia question for Friday, March 20th, 2009. Name this member of the Anacrid family whose Latin name means skin-eating spider. Hmm. All right, Cliff. I'll tell you what. Why don't you do the honors on uh, today's guest's introduction? Be, uh, be my pleasure. Jeffrey C. May is principal scientist at May Indoor and Jeffrey C. May is principal scientist at May Indoor Air Investigations in Tingsboro, Massachusetts. Educated as an organic chemist with a bachelor's from Columbia College and a master's from Harvard, he has taken and analyzed by microscopy over 25,000 air and dust samples from the thousands of homes and offices and schools that he has investigated. Jeffrey is a nationally recognized speaker on indoor air quality and is author or co-author of four books on IAQ, published by John Hopkins University Press. Titles would be my House is Killing Me, The Home Guide for Families with Allergies and Asthma, The Mold Survival Guide for Your Home and for Your Health, My Office is Killing Me, The Sick Building Survival Guide, and Jeff May's Healthy Home Tips, a workbook for detecting, diagnosing, and eliminating pesky pests, stinky stenches, musty mold, and other aggravating home problems. You should leave Cause I've grown to hate you Should I be weak until my chin Cause I'm scared to fall But I just don't love you And you don't know me at all Killing me slowly Did that say killing me slowly? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty good there. Good job, Cliff. Uh, good morning, Jeff. Do we have you on the line? You do. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. Good to have you back with us, Jeff. We only had you. We looked back. It was show number 25. That was um, over two years ago now almost, and uh, it's great to have you back. And we only had you for half the show, so we thought, let's get this man back for the whole show, and we appreciate you joining us. Oh, that's great. What number are you at now? We are at 117. Wow. Uh, almost a hundred shows ago now, and uh, it's been a, a good run for us, and things we're going to keep it going. Anyway, uh, let's get started with, um, you know, you're the inspection guy out there doing a lot of these uh, inspections, probably as many as anybody in, in the country. Um, what, what are the key tools that you have in your inspection toolbox? Well, I, uh, I joined the ranks. I have an infrared uh, camera now. 
and uh, I find that pretty handy in, in finding the sources of leaks. But that's really not my, my believe it or not, my my main tools are a, a, a good flashlight and a mirror. And uh, I use the flashlight, obviously, to look at things. I mean, a lot of the inspections visual, but I use the mirror to look under things and behind things. And you really you learn a lot. I have moisture meters that I use, and of course, uh, part you know particle counter, and uh, <clears throat> and then a bunch of air samplers. I, I actually I do it very the old-fashioned way. I have a Burkhardt personal air sampler that I use. I don't use the aerosols, and I make my own. Uh, glass slides with grease. So uh, the, a lot of what I do is from air samples and from dust samples. But the other big part is the visual, just the looking. I bet Dr. Dieter will be happy to hear you still grease your own slides. That sounds like <laughs> something he would, he would be doing. I'm just curious. Uh, you um, you didn't mention like a boroscope. Are there some pretty interesting new boroscopes out there? Do you use those at all? Yeah, I have I have a boroscope. I've had from one for you know for quite a while, and it does it, it does come in handy. Um, you know, it's just uh, you know to get, in most in a lot or in a lot of situations you can't really make holes. So one one thing that I found very useful, and maybe some of the, if you have you know professionals out there, you can you can actually take an electric plate off or a switch plate from a wall, and there's usually a hole there that's big enough where you can enlarge the hole so that it won't show when you put the switch plate back on. So you actually can look into the wall cavities without making a really obvious hole. Well, Jeff, I've got a two-part question for you. I, I suppose you often deal with clients who've done their own diagnosis as to what is causing their alleged building-related illness. The majority of the time, have you found them to be right or wrong? And if you find them to be wrong, how do you get them to consider other possibilities as reasons for their illness? Well, you know, it, it is pretty common <clears throat> for people to, uh, you know, to, to assign their uh, symptoms to incorrectly. What, what I think I always do is I always, you know, I always believe the client. To me, that's where this, all of these investigations really start. So I don't disbelieve the client, but very often they have, they're focusing on something that isn't really the cause. So just I actually had a situation like that very recently where uh, a woman has had water intrusion in, a, in her apartment, and uh, they did take out some drywall that was moldy, and, and actually the water problems haven't really been solved. And, and uh, <clears throat> she's convinced that it was, you know, stachybotrys. And actually she had a couple of reports from two different labs that said from two different investigators there was stachybotrys spores in, in the air. They each found one stachybotrys spore doing uh, sort of, you know, non-viable non sampling. And uh, I, I took about 25 air and dust samples in her apartment. And I did not find a single stachybotrys spore. In fact, there wasn't even any mold. She was horrified. She didn't really doesn't believe it. But there were. She's using a lot of air purifiers, charcoal air purifiers, and they're throwing out little bits of charcoal, and they kind of like look like stachybotrys. Some of them. So I think the other investigators misidentified um, the charcoal as as mold spore. So now I, I and now I have to 
tell her that uh, you know it's not it isn't stachybotrys that's the problem she's convinced that it's the problem do I don't know how to do that, but I, I mean, I actually, in order to, I actually brought the microscope to the job. I very rarely do that. I've only done it a few times, but I, because because she's done microscopy, I thought she would, you know, appreciate that. So she, you know, looked at the slides with me, and then she just couldn't believe it. I mean, there were no mold spores in any of the samples, really. Interesting. And you don't know if that changed her mind yet or not, I guess. I, I don't know. <laughs> I'm going to have to. I'll have to, I'll have to, you know, call her. But I mean, I just, uh, I mean, at this point, I'm not really sure. I think what one of the problems might be just wool rug, and this is something else that it's not very common because I do my own microscopy. I can see a lot of things that other labs don't really report on, and there were quite a few fragments of wool, uh, wool rug in the air. There, wool fibers fragment. And there's a, actually there's a scanning micrograph of this in my office. It's killing me. They fragment into re very small respirable particles, and not every wool carpet does that or wool rug. It's completely unpredictable. And there was quite a few. And wh the way I sample carpets and rugs is I actually I take a spatula. It looks very funny, but it's very very effective. I just take a metal spatula, and I tap the rug a couple of times, and then I collect the dust that comes off in a in the in the uh, <clears throat> in the sampler, and then I look at that under the microscope. So in this case, there was quite a few of those small particles that come from the wool. And interestingly enough, we both started coughing very shortly after. So I mean, I, I expect uh, that it may be because that's that's what happens to me when there are a lot of these little particles in the air. So, and you can see with a particle counter. I mean, the particle counter can go up from three or four thousand particles per cubic foot up to 50 or 60 or 70,000 by just a very, very gentle tap on some of these. So I suspect that that may be causing some of her symptoms. It's just the, the deteriorating wool fibers. That, that brings an, up a question that um, I, I'm curious about, uh, Jeff. When With your particle counts, I noticed you used um, per cubic foot and from about three or 4,000 up to 60 or 70,000. What's your ballpark uh, rule of thumb for what is somewhat normal in a typical indoor environment for a particle count in per cubic foot? Well, the the uh, I mean, in, I, I just happen to use that measure because people understand, you know, cubic foot. But the um, if in, in an undisturbed environment, if it's real clean, you might have a thousand or two thousand particles per cubic foot. And then, if you've got a lot of activity, you might have five, six, seven, eight thousand uh, per cubic foot. And then, if you've got a a carpet that has, you know, dust in it, that can go up, you know, quite a bit. So uh, <clears throat> it really depends on how much, you know, disturbance there is uh, in the air. I mean, I've actually I've I sampled a crawl space for just, you know, with that Burkhardt sampler for mold spores, and found in the quiescent air not one aspergillus spore and then just waved the notebook and the count has gone up to 18,000 uh, per cubic meter. So, uh, you know, the, the, the number of particles in the air really depend on, on the state of agitation of things if you're moving around. And um, I mean, I, that's why I think a lot of this, there's so much overemphasis on on you know calibrating things that we're in this air quality business you're talking about two to three orders of magnitude difference between 
the number of particles, and then you're talking about you know a few percentage difference in in air flows and calibrating things. It just it doesn't make sense. It's the you know the qualitative the qualitative of the results are very very important, probably more important than the quantitative results. But that's what the labs give you is numbers, so you got to deal with those. Let's uh, touch on another issue. You've, you've touched on it a bit. We we know that. You know, from reports and studies that the cases of allergy, the number of cases of allergy and asthma are increasing. And I'm wondering if from your, uh, you know, you've been doing this for probably 20 years or more now, from your perspective, are the number of cases of environmental sensitivities and or multiple chemical sensitivity, do they seem to be increasing to you? I don't know if they're they're increasing so much, I mean, as far as environmental sensitivity goes, but there's certainly, you know, there's greater awareness at this point and acceptance. So, <clears throat> I mean, I, I, maybe some, at least, I'd say at least 5% of the people have chemical sensitivity. And, uh, and then, you know, the asthma rate, I think, has certainly gone up. And I, I have, like, two possible causes, not quite what a lot of people are attributing it to, but one is that the uh, kids don't go out and play out anymore. They don't go outdoors, so they're exposed to indoor allergens. And most of the most, and in fact, I've been in homes where kids were playing video games and and just sitting there for two or three hours without moving anything more than a finger. So they're they're exposed to indoor allergens, and they're sitting in the same place, so they have much higher dust mite exposures. And then. Uh, another, the, my other sort of little pet theory has to do with enzyme exposures from uh, from detergents. I think that uh, <clears throat> the number of number of detergents that have enzymes in them has increased tremendously, and it's probably um, you know 70, 80 percent of the market. And and I think that the enzyme residues in in clothing and in sheets and pillows that that's, uh, you know, can cause asthma symptoms. You know, speaking of enzymes, uh, many of the quote-unquote green, all-natural cleaning products are, are based on enzymes. Uh, could you comment on that? Well, I, I, I don't have so much of an argument, really, with using en enzymes for just for hard surface cleaning. But the, the, the real problem with enzymes in detergents is that it produces a lot of aerosol. There's resi there are residues that are left on the clothing, and there are residues that get into the uh, you know into the lint. So, so people are breathing it in, and that's really where you know where I have my issue. That that uh, I know that the, the industry claims that there are no there's no allergy to the, the, this particular protease, it's called subtleth in the, in the general public, but in the manufacturing plants, they had very, very high rates, over 50% sensitization, and a lot of that was occupational asthma. So we know that subtleth is a very potent uh, asthmogen, and, uh, and the, the, the claim is that the manufacturers all claim, well, there is no residue that'll cause sensitization on the clothing. But I, I, I found otherwise. Well, you know, going back to that, and just, just to discuss it a little bit further, you know, it's not uncommon. I, I'm not sure what the difference really would be or 
whether you would even consider there a difference between cleaning clothing with a product that contained enzymes. What about cleaning carpet with a product that contained enzymes? It's not uncommon in certain situations for carpet cleaning detergents to have enzymes in them. Right. Yeah, that's interesting, actually. I hadn't thought about that. I suppose if, you know, if there's a lot of enzyme in there, then you could be uh, creating a problem. It, it really depends on the extent of the residue that's left. It does, it does vary tremendously. Uh, for example, if you, uh, the way I discovered this problem was I went, I went into a, a home where uh, I had been previously and they had remediated a lot of things, and then I didn't have problems in any areas any longer, but every time I went near anything that had been cleaned, washed, anything, clothing in the closet, sheets, <clears throat> I, I had trouble breathing. And when I went into the laundry, it was it was unbearable, and I, I saved that lint. And uh, I think probably that woman was very clean. She used, you know, instead of an eighth of a cup of detergent, maybe she used a half a cup or two mm -hmm. cups. I don't even mm -hmm. But she used a lot of detergent. And then if you, these enzymes are somewhat heat uh, sensitive. So if you, if you use a very hot dryer, you probably destroy a lot of the enzyme. Whereas if you don't use a very hot dryer or you hang things to dry, you have additional residue. So depending on how the clothing is washed, you'll have more or less subtlesland and residue on, on the fibers so that has a, a big impact on <clears throat> on whether or not you'll be affected by it so if you're washing a carpet and it's using really hot water not a whole lot of cleaning agent you may not have an issue whereas if the water is colder and you're not using a lot of that uh, you use a, a lot of it excess or it doesn't all get sucked out when you you know in that second step then you may end up with some uh, big problems Jeff, I, I was interested in, you know, we uh, emailed back and forth a little before the show, and I, I was really interested in this particular topic, and it, it's sub, subtilisance, S-U-B-T-I-L-I-S-I-N. And one of the notes you said here was that there's this is the only bioaerosol for which there's a threshold limit value, and that that is 60, I guess that's nanograms per cubic meter, and that some manufacturers actually use a much lower um, goal, I guess, for exposure in their facilities that are manufacturing these products. I'm curious, what types of levels have you measured in indoor environments of your patients? Uh, I actually, I haven't actually measured it, and I wish, you know, I wish that I could, and I've actually tried to get, you know, a number of allergists uh, interested in that, and I I haven't really been able to to actually test patients and, and test the air. So the only the only people that really have the capacity to do this are the, it's, uh, the manufacturers. And in fact, uh, Karen Sarlo, who works for Procter and Gamble, she's really done almost all of the research on this for them. And uh, <clears throat> Procter and Gamble is the company that actually set that 60 nanograms per cubic meter of air limit. And it is interesting. I mean, it is the only biological compound or bioaerosol that has a, you know, a threshold limit value. And they, they base that number on the rate of sensitization of workers. And what they found is that even at 60, that they, it was an unacceptable rate. And so they, on their own, in their own manufacturing, have gone to this 15 
uh, nanograms per cubic meter, but the TLV remains at, at 60. They, they actually, Karen Sarla wrote a paper, and they described a bar of soap. They thought it would be a great idea to put this protein enzyme in a bar of soap because it would get rid of the dead skin. And they did this very, very thorough analysis. I mean, they, they, they monitored air, um, aerosol in the shower and how much soap dissolved during a you know, shower and concentrations in the air. And I think they had 60 people, workers, who participated in this thing where they used this uh, bar of soap. And, and I think five people became sensitized after six months of just washing with the soap because they were breathing the aerosol in the, in the shower. So the aerosol is very, very uh, asthmogenic. There's no question about it. And, and it's, a, you know, it's a powerful sensitizer. And if, you know, if, if you've got a laundry using an enzyme containing detergent and you've got a leak in a hose, for example, you're blowing that lint constantly into the air people are breathing that so i think it's you know it's more common than is accepted but no one has done a recent study to actually look at it do you then recommend that your clients switch to enzyme free detergents and if so has that seemed to be helpful in, yes, in every case, I, if I see enzyme, and actually some of the you know organic, so-called organic detergents do have them, and I always recommend that they go to switch. And yes, it's made a, you know a really dramatic difference in, uh, in in the health of some of these folks that you know that were sensitized to it. Can you give us a, a, an idea of where we would find these enzyme-free? Oh. You just have to, you really, there's a few manufacturers that don't have enzymes, and you just have to, you know, you read the label. Okay. You know, there's, there's, you know, all doesn't have it, and I think there's, you know, there's a couple of big labels. And, uh, seventh generation, they, one of theirs has it, and I think they just recently now came out with one that does not. But you, just, you really have to read the label because they could change it at any time. Okay. Cliff? Yeah, Jeff, uh, you know, I, I guess you deal with a lot of people who have chemical sensitivities, and how do you handle it when the client matches their symptoms, you know, headache, uh, respiratory irritation, to a material safety data sheet of a product to which they've allegedly been exposed? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, uh, the MSDS sheets, as you know, I mean, they're, they're very, very limited in terms of, you know, the information. So, uh, I mean, I would, I suppose I would just ignore that, really, and just try and see what might possibly be there other than, you know, what you think it is, to, uh, you know, that might be causing the symptoms. I mean, there, the, um, there, there, are, a lot, there are a lot of ingredients that aren't on the MSDS, and often those that are are just it's not very relevant so i think it, it's unfortunate it's difficult to use those things in a in, in a sort of meaningful way it can be helpful but uh i i would always go with a you know inspection and trying if there are what the sources of exposure might be jeff we um we're coming up on halftime here and and the next question or two we have are going to take a minute. So I think we're going to break just a little bit earlier, go to our IE Connections, What's News with Glenn Feldman, and then bring you back if that's okay with you. Yep, great. Great, thank you.
Glenn Feldman. Do we have you on the line? Hello, Joe. How are you today? Very good, Glenn. How about yourself? I'm great. Welcome Wonderful. Welcome back to IAQ Radio. It's been a little while. I've missed a few shows. We've had a busy month in February, a lot of conferences and a lot of places to go, and unfortunately, uh, it's hard to do the show from the road. So, uh, Well, what's news this week, Mr. Feldman? Well, I'm going to talk about some stories that appear in the March edition of Indoor Environment Connections. You can read the entire newspaper online at ieconnections.com. I'll give you a taste for some of the top articles, and then listeners can go online and read the full text themselves. Uh, the first one is our At Press Time article. The headline is Study Links Indoor Air Pollution and Asthma. Uh, it's a study by researchers at Johns Hopkins University that has found an association between increasing levels of indoor particulate matter pollution and the severity of asthma symptoms among children. Uh, for the study, which, was, uh, which followed a group of asthmatic children in Baltimore, researchers from the Center for Childhood Asthma in the Urban Environment followed 150 asthmatic children from ages 2 to 6 for six months. And according to Meredith C. McCormick, a uh, doctor and lead author of the study, quote, we found that substantial increases in asthma symptoms were associated both with higher indoor concentrations of fine particles and with higher indoor concentrations of coarse particles. Hmm. Um, in many cases, the level of indoor uh, fine particulate pollution measured uh, twice as high as the accepted standard for outdoor pollution established by EPA. This study was published in the February 2009 edition of the journal Environmental Health Perspectives, and it just adds to the body of science showing the, the hazards of indoor air pollution, which is something we sorely need. Ties in with what we just discussed, too. It sure does. It sure does ties in nicely. Maybe Jeff will have some comments on it. Moving on to a couple other stories, uh, we, we talk a lot in this month's issue about winners and losers in the economic stim stimulus bill, uh, the massive uh, bill that was passed uh, signed into law by President Obama on February 15th, for instance, gives homeowners a, a very big tax incentive to make improvements to the overall energy efficiency of their homes, uh, including their HVAC systems. But it also includes uh, less money than had been promised for new school construction. On the, on the homeowner front, the new law gives homeowners the ability to claim 30% of the costs, uh, up to a $1,500 limit, for the installation of higher efficiency furnaces and boilers air source heat pumps, central air conditioners, and hot water heaters in tax years 2009 and 2010. One little uh, twist, though, is that the final package that was passed by Congress contains changes to the equipment that qualifies for these tax credits, including an increase in the minimum steer level for central air conditioners. Um, this is all good news for consumers if they could get the credit to make these kinds of purchases. So that's the, the second part of the economic uh, puzzle we've got to see solved. But in any event, uh, there's also a lot in the bill about green construction. In fact, more than $100 billion that is slated for new construction projects and retrofitting existing facilities to make them more environmentally friendly. I'll say that again, $100 billion. Hmm. And in addition to the billions of dollars uh, there that are focused on public building retrofits, the bill also contains tens of billions of dollars more for retrofitting moder and, and modernizing uh, const or constructing facilities for the military, police housing, uh, public housing, airports, uh, transportation, education, and environmental quality improvement agencies. The, uh, the school funding battle that took place uh, was significant as well. 
uh, proponents of a large increase in funding for school construction were disappointed when the bill was trimmed to win the support of moderate Senate Republicans. The uh, House had originally proposed $79 billion for school improvements. The Senate cut that down to $39 billion, and following a conference committee vote where the differences were reconciled, the final agreement called for $54 billion. That's still a big chunk of change. Democrats um, have expressed hope that the funding increase may wind up in the federal budget anyhow, which uh, which they're now debating on Capitol Hill. So there's a, a lot more to the stimulus package, and again, that's all in our March edition online at ieconnections.com. The last one I wanted to hit on today, Joe, is uh, headline, EPA accepts GAO recommendations on mold policy. You might remember last year the GAO, uh, that's the Government Accounting Office, issued a report indoor mold, better coordination of research on health effects, and more consistent guidance would improve federal efforts. It was a pretty important report, and it, it basically um, it affirmed what critics have often asserted, which is that indoor air quality issues can fall between the cracks of the existing federal regulatory structure, with environmental policymakers seeing it as more of a housing issue and housing-related agencies expecting the environmental side to take the lead. EPA agrees with and will try to implement the key recommendations made last year by the Government Accountability Office. And um, they had a, uh, a meeting on February 18th of all the key federal agencies that have a, a stake in indoor air, and they've pledged to do a lot better with their coordination and their public outreach. So we'll see what happens in the coming year. But you can read more about that meeting and some other interesting things that happened there on uh, page 9 of our March edition. Excellent. That's what I got for you this month, Joe. Thank you, sir. Can you come back for the roundup? I'd be glad to. We'll bring you back and see if you have a question here. Let's bring uh, the good doctor on. Hello, Dieter. Yeah, I listened carefully, and I have to agree with a couple of things that Jeff said. I did, and you know that one. In fact, you're the guardian of my wonderful microscope. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I looked at I don't know how many hundreds, thousands of particles. But I, I, I agree with Jeff 100%. If you look yourself through a microscope, you don't get a naked lab report from somebody. There are that many fibers, that many particles, whatever. I take one look through a microscope, and I know I, I get a feel for what I'm, I'm, I'm looking at, whether it is coal dust. I don't know how many samples I sized and looked at uh, from Pittsburgh air pollution uh, uh, days. <laughs> Uh, 35 or so years ago with fly ash and, and soot from, from, from trains and diesel trucks and what have you. So that gives me, I like to do that myself too. I haven't done it in a long time, but that, that is wonderful. I, I, I like that. You get a feel for what is up and yeah, who, who knows how to identify a wool fiber. And uh, I know wool fiber looks different from... Uh, a cotton fiber, or for that matter, an asbestos fiber, or for that matter, a glass fiber. I, I sized many of those, but I like that one. The other thing is, and it always always comes up, is with this mystic multiple chemical sensitivity, and which is really an undefined disease. I, I always say it has been invented by lawyers. <laughs> and... Um, it's, yeah, a lot of people who have allergies, uh, it's, I mean, there are some which are very, very specific, no doubt about it. 
but uh, many people who have allergies have multiple allergies, and they know that, and their doctor will tell them that when they do the test on their arm or on their back, when they test like 25 chemicals at the same time from from egg yolk to milk and, uh, yeah, whatever else. So I don't think that, you know, the inhalation of a non-existing mold spore produces multiple chemical sensitivities. Uh, the other one is also a good one. Now we can all play trivia pursuit. Indeed, uh, subterminus, uh, this is that uh, crystalline active enzyme. That is the lowest threshold limit value uh, uh, in the TLV list, the threshold limit value list from ACGIH, the American Conference of Gover Governmental Industrial Hygienists, it is the lowest. They are about two, four, zero, zero point zero 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 six milligrams per cubic meter. And while we are at it, the highest one is for carbon dioxide, which is 5,000. So this is something like seven orders of magnitude difference. So uh, yes, I, I, I think common sense and uh, uh, looking at problems is, is something um, uh, that, that, that helps to identify a problem in, in a health. Interestingly, I was just approached by a lawyer who had a, uh, defending a client where somebody bought some dyed um, uh, sheets, bed sheets, and they, quote, washed them, and they had a reaction. And they asked me, you know, can we analyze for the dye in the cloth? I mean, that can be done. But um, I, the first case that I, with which I was familiar was many, many years ago in Pennsylvania, where somebody had an allergic reaction to the enzymes in the detergents. And uh, I, I, that was my first thing over here. I asked, I told that lawyer, and I haven't heard from him since, that did he change or did he switch uh, a new uh, to a new detergent with maybe a different enzyme or another active in, uh, ingredient in it? And as a, I haven't heard uh, uh, back from them, and probably never will, but that is okay. So yeah, it is uh, it is an interesting field, which takes uh, in many instances a good amount of common sense uh, to come up with a reasonable answer to certain things and. Um, and I think that Jeff is on the right track over there with many very down-to-earth solutions and interpretations which people can understand and which are to the point. Very good. I think I talked much. <laughs> All right. Well, Dieter, thanks. We'll bring you back for the roundup. Whoop. I might have lost Dieter, but I think we have Jeff May back. Oh, I'm here. Okay. We'll bring you back for the roundup, Dieter. Good. No problem at all. I'll talk to you then. Hello, Jeff. Yes, All I right, we got you back. We had a, a little halftime break there, and uh, interesting that Dieter has already run into that problem in the past. Yeah. Um, I was uh, didn't realize that, and uh, I can confirm that he uh, does look at things in his microscope. He called me the other day and said, uh, do you have my microscope? I'm trying to look at something. <laughs> yeah, it, it's up in my office, unfortunately. I was suggesting Annie and I be the keeper of the microscope. <laughs> <laughs> Cliff, let's go on there. Okay, Jeff, can you tell our listeners about several of your most interesting cases? Yeah, sure. Actually, uh, there was there's a uh, sort of somewhat relevant to what Dieter was saying. I mean, I actually had 
uh, a woman purchased a, uh, a new couch. It was a custom couch. must have been, I don't know, somewhere between three and $5,000, and she couldn't sit on it. And uh, the company wouldn't take it back. So uh, she asked me to see if I could figure out what was going on. I did that same little technique, and I just, you know, we, I patted the thing with a spatula, took an air sample, I sniffed some of it, and uh, basically there were two, I mean, there were two issues. You could, there was some chemical uh, off-gassing, and I don't know what that was, but that was bothering her. But the real problem was that the, this custom couch was stuffed with... Um, with used feathers. Usually when you get when you look at the feathers from something, there'd be maybe one type of down or one type of feather. This was many different types of feathers and there were many, many, many dust mite droppings in the in the mix. And so what these people must have done is they stuffed it with used feathers, which is very outrageous. And I, I think it's even illegal. You know, most of these things you buy that are stuffed come with a tag. And she she sent them the report. I don't think she has yet got her money back. But I had another similar situation with a mattress where uh, a teenager was having asthma symptoms on this uh, new mattress, and he had to sleep in his uh, sister's room. And I took a small dust sample from the mattress, just tapped it, and it was it was full of uh, pollen and mold spores. And actually, there were some burned charcoal wood fragments in there and a lot of little crystals that dissolve because uh, you, ha- you have to look at the sample right away and, and a lot of times the medium will dissolve some of the crystals and you can see that so there were some strange particles and mattresses never get exposed to the outdoor environment because they're you know they're covered with sheets or whatever and they're wrapped in plastic and so the interesting thing was that the wood char fragments that the people didn't have a wood fireplace so the mattress had probably been in a in a built in a fire in a warehouse fire and gotten wet when they put it outside where it collected all of this stuff so she did get her money back from from that mattress those are two interesting cases now let me um, you mentioned dust mites and um, these dust mites apparently you know cause a lot of problems for people um, can you talk to us a little bit about what exactly a dust mite is and how we can help control problems from dust mites? Sure. The, uh, the dust mites themselves are part of, I guess, the, they're part of the spider family. And uh, you, you can actually see a dust mite if it's crawling on a black piece of paper. I mean, they're, they, they're now two to three hundred microns, maybe, and you can, you know, the hair is about a hundred, so they're, they're, they are visible. They're uh, very, very fragile. It's sort of funny. Most of the scanning electron micrographs that you see, dust mites, they look very sort of formidable, armored, you know, they look like a some kind of lizard, you know, scale. I mean, but in fact, they're just like this delicate bag of water. And I've actually had several dust mite colonies because I I always felt that to understand my biggest enemy, I had to really know them, you know, up close, personal. And so, and I spent a lot of time just, you know, watching them. And occasionally I'd want to get one out of the colony, look at it under the microscope, and you know, you'd stick a pin in or something, and I'd probably kill about 10 of them just trying to pick one up. Hmm. So they're very, very fragile. <clears throat> and 
they they're completely inactive when when the t- relative humidity is below 70 percent and the temperature is below 70. So they're if they're in a bed, for example, and you're not in bed, you know, they're just all clumped together. And, and you see that in the colonies. If you drop the temperature and the relative humidity, they all they form, uh, you know, like the the old days when the carriages when those uh, wagons went out west and the Indians came, they'd all gather together. So they, they conserve moisture by going into a clump, and they never move. So you see these little yellow dots in the colony the size of a, almost a pinhead. And there'll be 100 or 200 of these things all sitting there, and they all look dead. And then the minute the temperature and humidity go up, they're very, 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 very active. So when you get into bed, they're all sort of hiding somewhere underneath in the pillow or whatever in these little clumps. And then the moisture and the temperature go up from our body, then they become active again. And the simplest way, I mean, people go crazy. I mean, you just, you know, you can't believe the things they do to get rid of dust mites. And it's so simple to solve the problem. It's frustrating for me because I know it's how easy it is. And I know what people go through to, you know, to think they solve the problem. So it's, <clears throat> you just have to put covers on things, dust mite encasings that have uh, and they've got to have plastic. Some of the, like for example, there's a non-woven encasing you can buy. There's a doctor out there who sells uh, some encasings, and he has a a video on a CD of dust mites crawling through one of these dust mite covers. So a lot of people out there actually have dust mite covers that are useless. So in my opinion, you, what you have to do is you have to have dust mite cover that stops the moisture from getting in and also stops the allergens from coming out. And the only way to do that, 100% sure, is to use an encasing that has a sort of polyethylene, poly, rather polyurethane liner on it so they're not so crinkly. And uh, that stops the allergens from coming out and stops the moisture from going in. These newer ones, these sort of high-tech, expensive cotton polyester covers, some of them have holes in them that are big enough to let the allergens through and they all let moisture through so if you're if you have a dust mite colony in your bed or and you put one of these really expensive covers on they don't even know they they experience no change in condition so they can the colony continues to thrive so you've got to stop stop the moisture so the dust mites are basically where we provide them with body moisture which would be in our you know the big easy chairs uh, you know, the sofa where everybody's sitting, beds and pillows, and much less <coughs> frequently in, in, in carpets, although you will find allergen in the carpet because it falls out of the, out of the bed. Jeff, I'm curious, to, you know, a lot of people say keep your relative humidity low to help control the dust mite population. Um, how long can these dust mites last without a moisture source? Well, there's, for, for the house dust mite uh, that causes all this asthma allergy, there's, there's, uh, they go through nymphal stages. So I think there's like five or six maybe nymphal stages, and there's a couple of them, or one of them anyway, that can sort of overwinter. So they can last, you know, for several months. Uh, you know, they're completely uh, dormant. But dry, dry conditions that will definitely desiccate them. Like I always, I'm telling people, you know, don't wash your pillow, don't soak it and get it wet because, you know, it might get moldy. Just throw it in the dryer and get them good and hot, and that'll, you know, that'll desiccate them. So uh, that's, you know, that's a good strategy for 
things that you can't, um, you don't want to wash and soak. Uh, the other way to get rid of mites is to use the steam vapor treatment. I've been a big proponent of steam vapor. It's, you know, there are no chemicals. It's very green. You just boil water in a kettle. You have a high-pressure hose, and you can treat carpets. It's an instantaneous kill for dust mites. Um, it kills uh, fleas, everything, absolutely instantly. And I actually, I put it, I checked on a mattress. I cooked the mattress with steam vapor, and uh, I put a temperature probe at the bottom with about a one-inch thick mat, and that temperature probe went up to 212 degrees in almost a second. I mean, it was virtually instantaneous because the steam is a gas, and it goes right straight through the material, and it heats it up to the boiling point, you know, to 212, and then that really just kills and cooks everything. Interesting. Cliff? I was just going to say, under pressure, you can heat it up hotter than 212. You can get those, you know, that some of those things might have a temperature of 300. I think Annie had a question for you. I do have a question for you, Jeff. Um, in the kitchen, um, what is a common reservoir for the Pseudomonas? Well, the Pseudomonas uh, is that stinky sponge smell. Mm -hmm. And uh, I believe that, that, you, um, that you have... Uh, wherever you have, you know, food and water, you're going to get pseudomonas. So rags, you know, around maybe around the sink. But I, I actually have a scanning electron micrograph of a sponge that had some milk on it that got very stinky. And and that you can actually, I forget, it's in one of the books. That I forget. I think it's in uh, my office is killing me. And uh, it's a skin scale, and it's com being com digested by bacteria. You can actually see individual bacteria, like dozens of them on the surface of the skin scale. And uh, that's the odor, and, and that's where they are. I mean, I actually developed some silver polishes and for a company at one point when I was doing some uh, development work, product development. And uh, Pseudomonas aeruginosa was a big problem in, in, the, in the polishes, so we had to put in some uh, antimicrobial to keep them down, but it's a it's a very it's a very common bacteria. Jeff, I have a we've had numerous shows about damp buildings and health effects, etc. I'm just curious, what are your thoughts on whether you know is it mold, bacteria, uh, VOCs, microbial VOCs, insect parts? Is it the byproducts? What do you think causes the symptoms in people that are commonly associated with water-damaged buildings? My answer to that is yes. But <laughs> 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 uh, I, I think one of the really overlooked problems, and you know, I run into this a lot, that uh, you know, people are looking for discrete things. They're looking for mold spores. They're looking for bacteria. But the big sort of clinker in all of this is the fact that uh, that there there are surrogate allergens out there on everything, and what I mean by that is, let's say, uh, well, here, I mean I was just talking to somebody about this the other day. Like now, I can I can taste salt in the air, like on a dry winter day where the roads have been salted. You drive along, you can actually taste the salt, and these are micron, two micron sized crystals of salt that are aerosolized. Now, if you're allergic to a dog and the dog urinates on the salt and then the salt gets aerosolized you've got dog allergen on the salt 
the most common example of surrogate allergen is on those latex, the starch particles from uh, latex, where you know people can actually die if they have this latex allergy if they inhale the allergen on on the starch because the starch is inside the latex gloves in order to keep them from sticking together. So now picture one of those delicious looking uh, condensate pans in an air conditioning system mm -hmm. and you know it's it's full of this bio slime there's bacteria there's yeast there's mold it's you know grotesque it stinks and that's in the summertime now you take that you have a hot air heating system it dries out in the winter and you left and you look at the pan and basically all you see is a bunch of rust well when you look at that rust closely under a microscope and you stain it you can actually see some of the remnants of these things but that water is full of all of these allergens from all of these microorganisms. So I have been in environments where the air is very, very clean. There's almost nothing in the air, but there's lots of rust particles. So that tells me that the rust was probably in some pan sitting around with all these microorganisms. So the rust particles themselves can act as surrogate allergens. And I think that uh, David Strauss did, uh, looked at, at uh, drywall particles from, from uh, Stachybotrys growth and found that there was mycotoxin on the drywall particles. So it is possible that anything in the air can be bothering somebody, and that's why you really have to, you know, you've got to look at the people and say, oh, you know, if they're having symptoms, there is a problem, and you have to find out, you know, what the source of the problem is. If you don't see spores in the air, it doesn't necessarily mean anything. Okay, let's, uh, let's go to the roundup. I, I still have some questions, but I can get them in on the roundup. I want to give everybody else a chance. So, Chris? Let's go once around the table. Let's go back. Uh, let's start with Glenn Fellman. Glenn, any questions, comments? I had something I wanted to bring up a little bit off the topic, not too much. You were talking a lot about dust mites, and um, I've been hearing a lot, especially in the last so six or nine months, about another little insect, bed bugs. As a matter of fact, I'm getting ready to go to a conference in Las Vegas in two weeks, and someone sent me a a little thing from a, a consumer website telling me that there's bed bugs that have been reported at this hotel, a very fine hotel that I'll be heading to in Las Vegas. So my, my question for Jeff is, uh, you know, what, what, what do you recommend to consumers or people who find themselves with bed bug infestations? I've had friends who've had that problem, and, and it seems virtually impossible to solve. Well, for one, if you go, but let me just tell you, if you're going to a hotel, and you're worried about bed bugs, lift up the bedding, the sheets and everything, and look at the mattress and the cover and see if there's any blood stains because these uh, bed bugs feed at night. And, you know, you probably, one of them or two of them must get squashed every once in a while. So if you see little spots of blood, then that's a good sign that you probably want to check out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to follow that advice. Yeah. 
And the you know there's uh, I mean unfortunately you got to use pesticide. I would never want to use pesticide on a bed because then you're going to be exposed to that. So that steam vapor is a great way to do it. And yes, you know the the temperature of the water and the steam is well over 212. But as soon as it comes out, it still it becomes just steam and atmospheric pressure. But it's still hot enough to kill anything. So you can steam a mattress and kill them all. But unfortunately, the bed bugs the the sort of harborage can be in different places. I mean, I think most often they're under the buttons and in the seams of the mattress, but they can be in tubes. They can be... I actually had one of the pest people told me that they were... Uh, the harborage was behind a picture on a wall, and then they would come down at night uh, from the picture frame or whatever from behind the picture. So uh, the typical stuff, I think, is probably in the bed. There was one guy who told me that they were in the metal in the hollow metal tubes of the chair, this fellow slept in an easy chair with a metal frame, and the bed bugs were inside. So it can, and they can be in cracks. So you know, steam is very helpful, but if you if you're in, if they're all over the place, then it, you may have to do you know use pesticide. Cliff, there are a couple other natural things. Actually, heat's been pretty effective. Uh, there are a couple of heat systems actually accompanying. Uh, in, in Pennsylvania, uh, the Edwin Wigan Company is working with a pest control company for making a heating system, and actually cold's proven pretty effective uh, yeah, that's as well. That's a good point. Yeah, yeah, they do that for roaches too. Actually, that's an excellent point. Just a lot of dr uh, dry heat or freezing. And I, I remember hearing some folks that put their their uh, dishwasher outside in the middle of the winter to kill, you know, roaches in, inside. Interesting. Dieter, Dr. Dieter, any questions or comments? Yeah, well, interestingly, many, many, many years ago, I was in a very nice hotel in uh, in Las Vegas. <laughs> I just had to think about it when Glenn said that. And I caught some bed bugs, and I had no contact with uh, any sleazy woman or any of that. <laughs> but it had to come from one of the crevices of the bed. Uh, anyway... Uh, I, I was interested. I mean, I heard so much about uh, these dust mites, and uh, Jeff very correctly said, I mean, they are between two and 300 micrometers in, 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 in length, and a human hair is 100 micrometers. Mine is about 98, or it was. I haven't measured it in a long time, but I actually used my hair on occasion to calibrate a microscope. Um, anyway, I, I, I would think that with a good micro, with a good uh, magnifying glass, you ought to be able to find one of those uh, um, dust mites. I've never been able to find. No. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not suggesti suggesting that my house is completely free of them. No. You can't. I've, I've tried. I've spent, in the beginning when I first got into this, I spent hours looking at dust with dust mites, and you never find them because they're they're too small and hidden in the dust. You can find the droppings. You can see that. That's how I know that there've been dust mites because there are a lot of droppings. But you'll you all, the only time I ever saw dust mites coming out of a sample was from a vacuum dust sample from a carpet where this fellow was really sick. He couldn't stay in this house, and it was a very wet crawl space, so it was high humidity in the carpet. I had a big dust sample. You know, must have been a couple of grams, and. And six dust mites came crawling out of the dust onto the cat. And there was a book louse inside. And I guess book lice eat 
Uh, I'm, not, I'm sorry, it was a silverfish. It's a silverfish running around inside, and they probably eat the dust mites, and so the dust mites escaped from the dust, and that's the only reason. That's the only time I've ever seen it. Well, maybe once or twice I've seen them, but it's very, very difficult just because there's so much detritus. Okay, okay, I understand. Yeah. Cliff? Well, you can I just saw the other day a silverfish in my... Uh, bathroom maybe i let the guy live <laughs> yeah, yeah right <laughs> have him like a cat go around yeah i hope Dottie's listening <laughs> <laughs> Cliff, oh, i'm gonna i'm gonna apply chemicals i kill them all <laughs> yeah i'm a no prisoner kind of guy myself dieter um jeff you kind of let into it uh what what's your opinion on the role that wall-to-wall carpet plays in indoor air quality are you a proponent of having wall-to-wall carpet or not having it well, I, I suppose it really depends on, on people's sort of allergy status because I think, I mean, if I weren't, didn't have so many allergy issues myself, I mean, I, I'd have carpets, but I can't because of all the, you know, the, just the dust that accumulates. And there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of, obviously, a lot of controversy, like the Carpet and Rug Institute has done all these studies. And it's kind of funny because, you know, if you, if you, this is what they do. They'll take. I think. I think this is what they did. They take a room and they put a pound of dust in the room. And there's a carpet in one room and there's hardwood floor in the other. And then, you know, you 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 uh, you, you take an air you take an air sample. You put a fan on or something. And of course, it's much higher in the side that has the hardwood floor because the stuff's blowing around and it's trapped in the carpet. So yes, indeed, carpet acts like a filter. But the problem comes in when you walk on the carpet, you walk on the filter, nobody would shake a filter. So, you know, yes, it acts as a filter, but no, the particle counts are, you know, 10 times higher above carpet. So, so from a, a just a, an allergen storage point of view, that's always going to be an issue. The carpets have a memory. So if, you know, someone had a cat 10 tenants before and you're very allergic to cat you're going to still be exposed to that cat allergen so that's a problem and then of course you have the chemical emissions from carpets now the industry has done a you know a pretty good job of reducing it but you still get bad carpets and i actually i got stuck myself with one where you know i couldn't breathe from in this you know hallway where we just put a you know we put a carpet down for sound so it's a it's a big issue from two you know from two points of view, one from the chemical emissions and the other from the particle storage uh, area. Okay. Annie? Yeah, Jeff, we have a couple of your books floating around the office here, and, and I'm going to grab a couple and read them in the next couple weeks. But I understand that your wife uh, helped co-write a uh, book or two, and um, I just want to know, what was it like writing a book with your wife? It's tough. <laughs> <laughs> it's tough. <laughs> it's tough. I mean, I'd be standing there dictating to her, and then I, and then I'll stop, and then she just keeps on typing and typing. <laughs> so, yeah, we 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 work. I mean, we work together, hour after hour. When we're really writing, we have a little condo up in Vermont, and we work. You know, ten, twelve hour, put in twelve hour days. You know, take a walk here and there, and and uh, you know, write and rewrite. It's 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 grueling and. Uh, we've done it now, you know, with four books, and each one has to be rewritten a couple of times because, you know, there's always something the publisher doesn't like. And we have our, you know, we have our arguments. The big, the great thing is that Connie is a completely verbal person, and so if there's anything missing, like if there's any link in an explanation, 
she doesn't understand it. So and it's just so it's torture for me because I'm a visual person. So I see everything in pictures, and so to actually have to describe everything in a way that literal people can understand it, it's very difficult. So anytime we have arguments or battles, it's because I'm thinking in pictures, and she doesn't, you know, she can't read the words. So if the books are clear and understandable, it's be it's because of her. Well, they are definitely, Jeff. I, I have two quick ones I want to uh, ask. Any quick tips for remediation people? I mean, I, I always try to make sure that we give something to everybody. You, you follow up on a lot of these remediations, or you recommend, I would have imagined, certain remediation activities. Any tips we can give to the remediators out in the crowd? Oh, sure. I mean, a couple. First of all, obviously, the, you know, containment is so important. I mean, sometimes, you know, they're careless, and I've seen people turn off the fans, the exhaust fans, when they leave, you know, an environment, and then things can spread around. So that's, you know, that containment's really, I mean, the exhaust, the negative pressure has to be maintained. And then for for crawl spaces, I've seen some folks that are supposedly remediating crawl spaces, and they, they leave the fiberglass insulation in place. And, you know, I would say that I've taken hundreds of samples of fiberglass insulation, and 100% of the insulation is very severely infested with mold in crawl spaces. And I would say probably 60% of basements where there is exposed fiberglass also has um, mold growing in. And it's, you can't see it. There's only one way to know, and that is by sampling. And again, what I do is I just simply tap the fiberglass and take a, <clears throat> take a sample for a couple of seconds of the dust, and you will see the fibers are just completely wrapped. And again, there's a scanning electron micrograph for that, and uh, I think it's my house is killing me. But that's a, you know, leaving fiberglass insulation can be a big problem, even if it's three years old and it looks yellow or pink or whatever, it can be very, very uh, infested. And then another little tip for the remediator is one thing when cleaning up these basements, they often forget the top of the foundation wall, and that's where there's, all, there's terrible dust mite, um, uh, mouse droppings and mouse urine and allergens and all kinds of moldy dust. So you really you clean the foundation. You've got to do the tops of the, you know, the, tops of the wall. Very, very important. And final tip, which is from Jeff May's Healthy Home Tips, is you can use Elmer's glue. Elmer's glue is polyvinyl acetate. It's a um, it's the same resin that's in a lot of paints, very cheap paints, I should add. And you can you dilute up you can dilute it up in about half, and 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 paint things. And it's a great sealant for unfinished wood, and it has no odor. So you can if somebody's got chemical sensitivity, they don't want off gassing. You can uh, you know paint the whole wood frame structure in a basement where there's been mold on the joists bottoms of cabinets, whatever. Excellent. Those are great tips. I, I'm glad we asked that question. Uh, there's one more that was uh, emailed in by a listener here. Actually, the question is, have you heard that diatomaceous earth will kill bed bugs? Actually, diatomaceous earth can kill many types of insects. It can desiccate, and it actually scratches their exoskeletons. So it's, it's okay. an option. Um, how would but you, you might, I mean, you might have to spread too much that around actually i mean i know they use um it's just uh you know diatom skeletons uh right. you, you pile it into corners and things like that but i don't know if you i don't know if you'd put it on a bed if you might be more of an irritant you know it's just an, 
an awfully fine powder. Yeah, very, I, very I, fine. I, yeah. Believe it or not, I, I, I have a, I'm an aquarium guy, and I have a diatomaceous earth aquarium filter, which is phenomenally efficient. But the diatomaceous earth powder is so fine, I'd worry yeah. about people breathing that yep, stuff that's in. That's right. Yeah. And picking up and becoming a surrogate allergen too, actually. Yeah. yeah. Right. And it's okay in corners where people aren't, but I don't know. I, I'd say if you, I mean, for a mattress, the steam is the best, is the simplest thing, or dry heat, as you said. Okay. What area of um, indoor environmental quality would you like to see more research on, Jeff? Well, I suppose the surrogate allergen issue, because uh, you know we ought to be. I think the the best thing that we could do is to measure. Uh, you know, some of these enzyme concentrations. I think that protease is probably one of the largest causes of asthma and allergy and sort of bioaerosol hypersensitivity. And if we could measure these things, we'd be in great shape. I know I sent you that that uh, little article, a uh, post that I did on the Internet, and, and that level of subtlest in enzymes, 60 nanograms uh, per cubic meter, that actually works out to if you have let's say had protease on a on spores at a, at a level of a thousand spores per cubic meter I calculated you could have about 10 10 to, I think it was 10 to 15 nanograms of, of just one protease from a mold spore so it is very reasonable to assume that these uh, that the proteases are causing a lot of the symptoms and we need ways to actually to measure them in the air fascinating it's been a fascinating interview we really appreciate you joining us today jeff is there anything we missed or anything you'd like to add well man just this sort of little note to what Dieter was saying about looking at the microscope i mean when you do when when the labs give you the counts they give you let's say they give you an aspergillus count indoor and outdoor and you know it might be the same but what i really look for indoors always is chains of spores. In all of the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of outdoor samples that I've taken, I've really only seen one chain of aspergillus or penicillium spores, whereas that's what I always see indoors. And so all of the labs should really indicate whether the spores, the penasp or aspen spores, appear in a chain or not. Because even though you might have a lower count, you could, let's say you had 100 uh, spores per cubic meter outdoors of Penasp, and you had 10 indoors, if those 10 are in a single chain, that means that there's a, an indoor mold problem. So that, that's a really, really crucial to understanding what's going on. And unless the labs do it, you really have to look at the samples yourself to see that. Excellent. And before we go, we have to make sure we know how listeners can get a hold of your books. Well, they're on, uh, they're on Amazon. Uh, they're in, uh, you know, Barnes and Barnes and Nobles. They're all the. They're in a lot of places, uh, fortunately. Excellent, Jeff. Not libra- don't get it from the library. Got to, got to keep you writing books, so we'll have to go out and buy a few. Uh, make sure that our listeners do as well. Well, Jeff, we really want to uh, thank you so much for joining us here here this week on um, Indoor Air Quality <laughs> Radio. 
and uh, we appreciate you coming back. I also want to say thanks to uh, Glenn Fellman for joining us this week and helping us out with the Indoor Environment uh, What's News segment. Of course, um, our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Weil. I want to shout out a thank you to him. Uh, I want to thank the uh, Z-Man and Environmental Annie here, obviously, uh, in, the, in the studio, along with the Wingman. Next week, we're going to have uh, Dr. Jason DeBranick and uh, Derek Tanner. Uh, we're going to be talking a lot about uh, microbiology with Jason, and uh, Derek's kind of the soot man out there. So we're going to talk a little bit about soot and uh, how they analyze for soot. Uh, both are from EMSL Analytical. So I want to thank all of those folks, and before we go, I want to make sure that we thank our growing group of loyal listeners. Thanks again. Come back and join us next week at Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production.